Hello and welcome to the Human Rights Pulse podcast. I'm Axa Hussein, the co-founder of Human Rights Pulse, and I'm thrilled about bringing interesting conversations about global human rights issues to your playlists. I'll be speaking to inspiring people who are working tirelessly for their causes in the human rights field, often for causes which are unfortunately underreported. My guest today is Mohammed Badran. Born in Damascus, Syria, Mohammed studied interior design at Damascus University, whilst also engaging in humanitarian work with the Syria Trust and UNHCR. As a result of his work, he began to receive threats, eventually forcing him to leave Syria. As a refugee, he undertook a dangerous journey across many borders in an effort to find a safer home. After I got deported from Egypt to Beirut, to Lebanon, and then from there to West Africa, back and forth, to Ghana, to Togo. He found this home in the Netherlands in 2013. Mohammed's been a leader in challenging the mainstream discourse about refugees. In 2017, along with two other refugee leaders, he launched the G100 Initiative, a movement that is working to change the current narrative on refugees and the refugee experience across Europe. If from the beginning you are not allowing refugees to speak and to develop their own solutions, then they will never be in a position where they are independent. You'll hear us talk more about this. He's also a member of the Network for Refugee Voices and the founder of Syrian Volunteers in the Netherlands, a refugee-led network with more than 600 volunteers helping the elderly with household tasks, caring for disabled children and bringing new ideas by and for newcomers. I'm really excited to talk to him. Here it goes. Thank you so much, Mohammed, for joining us today. I'd love to ask you about your story because it's one that's obviously very inspiring. Tell us a bit about that story and how you ended up in the Netherlands. Um, thank you, Aksa, also for inviting me for uh, to be here with you. And thank you for this uh, kind introduction um, as well. Uh, my name is Mohammed Badran. I'm, I'm a Palestinian, Syrian, uh, Dutch refugee as you said, I was born as a refugee, as a Palestinian refugee in the Yarmouk refugee camp in Damascus. And I grew up there uh, until I became 19. And then I, I took the, the decision again that my grandparents also took when they left Palestine. And then I left Syria because due to, due to the Syrian conflict and war that started there in 2011, I took you know the refugee experience and the refugee road and journey to, um, to reach to the Netherlands, where I'm right now. Um, a citizen of the Netherlands. How long did that whole journey take? Um, The journey took about um, seven to eight months, I think. It was a very difficult, uh, I mean, it's a very difficult decision when to, 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 to take and to make and to also, you know, um, to decide that you want to leave your family behind, to decide that you want to leave your your friends, your uh, your neighbors, and the country where you lived and and grew up in, uh, what what you also grew up, you know, calling home, and and leaving leaving all of that, um, and then going to literally to the unknown, um, going in a journey to to the unknown. You don't know how you are going to be treated. You don't know um, if you are going to even survive because you are literally taking that risk that you might not survive. When I took um, the journey, um, I took, I left Syria and then my first um, uh, journey was actually to to go illegally and what it's called illegally. But it was, for me, it was the only way because I'm, I'm as I said, since I'm a re- Palestinian refugee, that means that I'm stateless. That's how the international um, re- the international system and the international community recognize me. 
And that means that I'm, I'm not allowed to, to basically obtain a visa. I'm not allowed to, to have the right to become a refugee again. And then the only road for me was to take, you know, the illegal road and then go. Um, I, I left to Egypt and then I tried to, to get in a boat, in a refugee boat um, from Egypt to, to Italy and then to Europe. Um, that didn't work. Um, and then I got arrested in Egypt because uh, by, by the Egyptian police who opened fire on us when we were on the boat and two people died. Wow. And then I had to go back and forth. Um, after I got deported from Egypt to Beirut, to Lebanon, and then from there to West Africa, back and forth, um, to Ghana, to Togo. And then finally, you know, I, um, I made my way to, um, to the Netherlands. Gosh, that's... Um... And I was, I was just 19, uh, you know, going through all of that. And then when I reached the Netherlands, I, I, I still remember that I didn't want to recall any of my story or any of my experience because it was very difficult and was very very harsh but then at a certain moment i i decided you know to just embrace that and 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 learn from it and then try to use it to show the resilience that refugees also have yeah that's incredible and so speaking about this uh, idea of showing the resilience of refugees you've also spoken before about this idea of being the solution Right. Can you tell me a bit about the projects that um, you've embarked on since coming to the Netherlands, where you embody these ideas of resilience and being the solution, etc.? Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, thank you for the question as well. Um, maybe also to give you, you know, a little bit of background because I I was involved, you know, in activism since I was, you know, in a, in a very young age when I was. Um, uh, and at the refugee camp. And I remember, and I, when I say that, you know, being a refugee and growing as a refugee, I always cared for this um, case and for, mm -hmm. for refugees. And when the war started in Syria, I also was, in, was involved in activism and work and helping other refugees in Syria. Um, so I have, you know, um, a whole package of experiences of, of working with refugees and, and supporting this, this group um, who I also belong to. And then when I arrived to the Netherlands, I was immediately uh, seen by the system just as a number, you know, just as, as one of the many who were called uh, a problem uh, or a crisis in, in Europe, or um, the people who were called a burden um, very often, you know, by, by states, by EU states and by others, or a threat or others, or, you know, we are going to ruin the whole uh, system. Um, so my whole idea was actually to showcase how we we can be the solution and turn, you know, we always say that in every crisis, there is always an opportunity. And Absolutely. then our, our aim was to, you know, to, to, to work on showing that opportunity that refugees brought with them to these societies. And, and then that was my first initiative that we, that became an organization later um, in the Netherlands, which is called Syrian Volunteers in the Netherlands. It's a, it's a network, it's a refugee-led network uh, by um, Syrian and Dutch uh, volunteers who are working to help and contribute to the Dutch society, you know, by voluntary work and matching volunteers. And by, you know, having that concept in mind of, you know, giving back to the, to the, to the Dutch society and grow, um, that was our 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 main uh, concept about how we would like to organize ourselves. Um, that also showed that uh, we have resources, we have talents, uh, we are contributing with our time, we are working, and we are trying to find solution to um, to 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 help other refugees, but also to help the Dutch society. 
That's amazing. So you're essentially reframing the narrative behind what it means to be a refugee and also um, that this isn't a crisis. This is an opportunity for these Western societies essentially to benefit um, from from what you can bring to the plate. Um, And what are these tasks that you help out with? What are the sorts of things that you volunteer with as an organization? Yeah, um, I mean, firstly, we started um, giving, uh, you know, giving just support to the Dutch organization who were trying to help other refugees, you know, in the, I mean, we start, we established and working with the organization immediately when it was, you know, the, the crisis in, in, in Europe. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that start- was around 2013, uh, right? 15. 2015, right. 2015. Um and that was, you know, with the, when the whole civil society, also the Dutch civil society, were also very active. You know, mm-hmm. you have seen a lot of the uh, welcoming, uh, welcome refugee movement. Um, a lot of initiatives started from the Dutch society. And then our aim was to, how can we support these initiatives into supporting other refugees? And then, you know, by providing translation, uh, by providing um, uh, our advice, by providing our experiences into on, on how we succeed or find or not really succeed because we were like also just, you know, two years or three years uh, arrived in the Netherlands, but we, we had so, you know, some kind of, Mm -hmm. I would say um, tips that, you know, how you can start finding your own way. What are, what were the challenges that we face and how the newcomers can avoid these challenges. And then we start also providing um, cultural, um, intercultural um, exchange programs between Dutch locals and, and refugees at the camps where we discussed, for example, human rights, we discussed issues such as, you know, LGBT rights, and then having that discussion um, where um, not, you know, going immediately to to judging people that um oh these people they don't know of you know human rights or they don't they don't respect lgbt community or i don't know what but having that discussion and understanding why there is also a human rights why Mm -hmm. there is an lgbt rights and if we don't have these discussions then people will never understand why these people even fought for their rights to have, you know, to have their rights also recognized. So that were our focus. And we were also providing um, Dutch language courses, including, you know, with um, and also Arabic uh, courses to to, to Dutch locals. Um, Great. Yeah. Right. To also, you know, showcase that um, refugees have something to offer, which is also was, you know, in this case, um, the Arabic language. And then they can um, locals, Dutch locals who are interested in learning Arabic, they can learn Arabic and then refugees can teach them Arabic and then they can learn Dutch from them. Amazing. So real sort of intercultural exchange going on. Wow. And what do you think the perception is now? Is there this perception of equality or? Mm, I would say um, there, 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 there is a certain um, um yeah, there, there, there's a certain like um, structural um, inequality um, positioning um, where we put always refugee in. So refugees are never, um, refugees are always, you know, the helpless. Refugees are always the victims. Refugees are always the threat. Refugees are always the, the poor. But we'll never see refugees, you know, as the active as refugees, um, you know, the doctors are refugees are, are the givers, are the helpers and, and the volunteers. So I think the perception is that, is that, you know, that the best that you would get in, as a narrative for mm-hmm. refugees is that, you know, there are those uh, poor people that we want to help. 
coming, you know, from uh, Western uh, perception or, you know, um, NGOs, uh, European NGOs, you know, trying to raising some fund, you know, to support refugees, which is always, you know, I, I, I say always that most of these, you know, narratives may be coming from um, well, um, uh, it's well intended. But um, it's I'm I'm not sure how 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 effective uh, it's it's being perceived by refugees or how is that um, contributing into um, creating that equal um, positioning into the society where they are live in that they are not helpless anymore that the people have agency and they can contribute and we should build on their res- resilience and build on their agency. So interesting. The way that you frame it, I think, is something that is really missing from. this again narrative that we see on tv all the time in mainstream media right so you've sort of had experience of refugee policy so to speak from the civil society level the domestic level the international level even do you see a difference in the way that you can approach this issue in terms of how the various institutions shape the narrative or you know, is one better than the other at tackling some of the challenges that you faced in this space? Yeah, I mean, I would say um, I I, th- I think local level is 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 one of the most interesting um, thing. So cities um, are are very interesting actually, and it's it's something that I've I've became more and more passionate about because looking at how cities. Um, they try to find immediately practical solutions. They try to uh, to speak to refugees. Um, the more that you go with the levels, so national, regional, international, the more the spaces starts to you know to shrink for refugee participation. Um, another things that you know we we have done in the global refugee forum was you know we co-organized as you know with the G100 initiative. Maybe I should also um, explain what is that. Yeah. <laughs> The G100 initiative is an initiative that we started, you know, um, focusing on to bringing 100 refugees uh, together with policymakers and experts in every city uh, where we can develop, map the different challenges in every city uh, for refugee policies and then try to develop uh, c- concrete po- policy recommendations and solutions by refugees. Because meaningful refugee participation equals um, self-reliance to be, you know, independent in the future on your own. Right. If, if, if from the beginning you are not allowing refugee to speak and, and to develop their own solutions, then they will never be um, in a position where they are independent um, and break, you know, that vicious cycle of being dependent on others and the society or, or organization on others. And wow. then we have done it in Amsterdam, Brussels and Berlin. That's incredible. So is that how you've been using your time during this lockdown period or? Definitely. And also <laughs> others as well. Um, I mean, we also with the COVID-19, uh, we started here in the Netherlands, the Corona Help Desk, which is a help right. desk uh, that provides information to newcomers in their own language about, you know, the COVID-19, everything actually related to the COVID-19 and every everything related to the prevention uh, prevention measures and, and regulations by the governments because we have seen that newcomers actually even though you know they are not included in the in the in the response to the covid-19 and they don't have access to information um, when it comes to uh, crisis times uh, such as the COVID-19 crisis and pandemic. Um, so, th- so this is something we have been also working on together with other refugee-led organizations. Um, five actually came together, built the help desk. We have 40 volunteers um, who speak Tigrinya, 
for Eritrean refugees and Arabic for Syrian and other um, Arabic speakers, refugees. And they call basically, um, you know, through an app and then they ask their question and then our volunteers try to provide them with uh, trusted information that we that we also, you know, bring from the government and we translate Mm -hmm. uh, to an Arabic and Tigrinya. Wow, that I mean. It's so incredible to see the impact that you guys are, you know, you're actually doing stuff on the ground and all this negative, negative, um, you know, negativity surrounding the refugee narrative and everything. It's just you you completely blow it out of the water with these sorts of initiatives. And, you know, I only wish that these were what the news was showing. Uh, you know, when, uh, when we talked also earlier, I think about the crisis and how we can turn that into opportunity. Um, we are right now building um, a campaign of, um, you know, mobilizing basically um, refugee doctors who wants to, um, to contribute and to support during these times of COVID-19. Um, these people, we figure out that they they uh, have so much talents. They practice medicine in their own country for many years, and then they come to the Netherlands and they stop. They cannot do anything because of the very rigid, um, uh, outdated system, bureaucratic system. And then we figured out that um, you know uh, we want. Uh, we start to mobilize uh, this group of of refugee doctors who would like to help. And we found that this is an opportunity where we can highlight that these people need to need to um, have a better policies in order to survive in the society because it's just a waste of you know of talent it's a, it's a win-win situation where um, they can provide they are willing to help they are willing to risk their lives and help others in this crisis times uh, which is also something happening in the UK I mean uh, I, I think um, there, there has been some articles about how migrant doctors have been contributing and and, and absolutely more than 40%, I'm not quite sure of the, of the percentage, but there is a huge amount of migrant doctors who have been contributing during this crisis. And I, I think this is something that should be uh, highlighted, should be on the on the first pages of the newspaper, um, because this is something that shows why migration is something good for the society. Absolutely. Um, you, you've hit the nail on the head on that. So you've spoken a lot about higher education and the necessity of access to education for refugees um, and that there have been various bureaucratic challenges um, that you faced um, yourself, but also other refugees face in being able to um, gain access to higher education. But can you tell me a bit more about that and um, also about your current studies? What is it again? Culture, anthropology, and development sociology. Gosh, it really rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I studied for four years, so I have to. I, I think we practice yeah. it very well. Um, I, yeah, it's um, it's actually a study that I that I that I learned uh, and I I became very passionate about when I started with it, rather, you know, before starting with it, because maybe there's something I didn't mention that when I left Syria, I was actually studying something totally different. I was, I was studying interior design, which is something, you know, in the art and um, not really, you know, very socially, but I was active, you know, very socially with working with Mm -hmm. social issues and and challenges in, in the society. And then when I started with cultural anthropology, I found that this is, you know, this is the study where I can I can help with it. I can I can I can contribute to the to the crises that I, that we are dealing with, with the issues that we are dealing with, much more better 
what I felt at the at the moment, you know, from just interior design, even though I I, I love art and I am passionate about art. Um, but yeah, I, so it's, it's something that I also taught me how to think differently and help shaping all of my, you know, concepts, um, about refugee participation and about, you know, our, our thinking and our narratives and our, you know, because it's, it's very much looking at the human center and then looking about how you can, um, understand an issue just from the lived experience of, of the people who lived that experience. And, and it's something I I think it's very powerful and it's helping me to um, to advise uh, you know policymakers better to advise organizations better and to provide you know better uh, recommendations in my work at the moment. Yeah, very cool. I think um, in terms of studying people and stuff, how was it you're moving to the Netherlands and studying the Dutch people? I mean, I was there for three years. It's um, it's a very strange experience learning Dutch and also um, becoming acclimatized to, I guess, the, the very directness of the Dutch people and all these things that they're known for. Um, which is interesting because sometimes I became right now, you know, more direct, even, you know, when I speak in Arabic or with, with my friends. And then I, I there, there, there has been, of course, I mean, a lot of influence, even in, in the way that I would interact with uh, with people or sometimes you know I would say something in Arabic even though that that's actually it sounds better in Dutch than than it's it's not actually in Arabic or, yeah. or in other language. <laughs> yeah. Um it's uh, yeah, I it, uh, learning uh, the Dutch language wasn't um it's it's not an easy language but it was a mm-hmm. challenge that I'm I'm also proud that you know I have done it. Because it was for me, you know, especially working with policymakers and then trying to do the work that we have been doing. I remember when we started, we started just speaking in English. And then we realized when you are talking, you know, to government officials and to um, to the city officials and everyone, that when you speak to, to them in English, they would maybe listen to you, but they wouldn't, you know, take take, you know, that serious as if you speak the language that they speak and it's a it's very powerful i think as well you know yeah. and that you said that i can speak the same level and talk about the same issues that you want to talk about in your own language and then just have a discussion with you in your own language and i think this is something that i've learned uh, while i'm doing the work that i that i have to speak the language very well and to to have discussion with them in their own language and that helped me to um, to actually have more impact and more influence on on people than uh, than before. Yeah, it gets rid of that othering almost as soon as you are able to speak in this common tongue. Or yeah, I, it definitely eliminates. Um, I remember that you know every time I look, um, I go to international conferences at the UN in the New York or in Geneva, and then I meet with the Dutch mission. Um, we all speak in Dutch, and it's for them. It's something that you know they. Um, I think they're happy, you know, to that, that that they can speak the language with someone, especially with someone um, not necessarily from the Dutch mission and just, you know, working there in, in these spaces and a refugee. And then for me, I also like to speak with them, you know, in Dutch, even though like we are like surrounded by international people and then suddenly we start speaking <laughs> Dutch. And then I, I remember that a couple of times and when I did the speech in 2016, um, that the, the minister um, of, of, of foreign affairs came and, and told me like um, we feel very proud of you and even though that you are not you know um, Dutch and it's it's a strange but we feel we feel very proud and that's something also um, you know ha- had me you know when uh, when 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 they they said that and I and I found it also very 
very kind and 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 very welcoming you know when even in the in geneva i remember also the minister there a couple of times that we say um they also right now they say our muhammad like that's you know it's uh it's 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 a it's something yes maybe maybe eliminate maybe by speaking the language but i think um th- there there has been a lot of people who 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 have a good heart and 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 they wanted to welcome refugee sincerely um yeah and it's there there has been a lot of um good experiences and a lot of um good dutch people that i worked with um and I came in touch with and i'm very grateful for uh, yeah for everyone i would say i guess sort of a departing question um, is how can young professionals, um, many of whom uh, are constitute the listeners of this podcast, um, and those just interested in engaging in this topic more, um, help out, get involved um, and do more? Um, yeah, I mean, it's, um, it's a very good question. I would say, um, uh, you know, there's always the magic word, which is listen, that I've, I've talked about it. Mm-hmm. Um, listen, 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 listen to uh, the people, to refugees and to the people that you would like to help. And then um, try to imagine yourself in that system, um, how you would like, how you are going to make that system more humane um, towards refugees. Um, try to build on that. Um, yeah, that, 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 I think that would be my core advice. Um, that, is, that a, is, that a, is that a good advice? Yeah, I, th- I think that's a fantastic advice. I think it's so incredible to hear about the work that you're doing. So thank you very much. Thank you, Axel. This was such an inspiring and uplifting podcast to record. Muhammad's work in changing the narrative for refugees is powerful and it's already having an impact. This is exactly what needs to be in the headlines, not the ridiculous negative nonsense that we keep hearing about refugees being burdens or part of a crisis. That's simply untrue. And we need to make sure that we keep shining a light on the work being done by incredible people like Mohammed. Please share his story and his work with your friends, families and colleagues. In the article accompanying this podcast, you'll find some interesting resources to learn more. Once again, a massive thank you to Mohammed for joining us on this Human Rights Pulse podcast. A massive thank you to Annabelle Hazlitt and Laura Gallup for their help in producing this. Make sure you find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram and Facebook and let us know your thoughts. Stay well and stay safe till the next inspiring conversation at Human Rights Pulse.